Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 119, Apocalypse on Boston Bay. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss the greatest tragedy to befall the original inhabitants of the Shamit Peninsula. In the years immediately before English Puritans settled in the area, a series of epidemics nearly wiped out the indigenous population of New England. The worst of these plagues was centered on Boston Harbor and swept from Narragansett Bay in the south to the Penobscot River in the north. Native peoples sometimes referred to it as the Great Dying, while English settlers called it a wonderful plague or a prodigious pestilence. They believed that the disease had been sent by God to purge the native inhabitants of the continent and make way for his chosen people. But before we talk about the Great Dying, we want to introduce our Patreon campaign. We are proud that we've been able to bring you a show every week for almost two and a half years, and we've only missed one week in that time. We hope you agree that the podcast has gotten better over time, as we learn to be better researchers, writers, and speakers. However, bringing you this show isn't without costs. We pay for monthly web hosting and security, the service that hosts our podcast feed, and for some audio processing tools. You can help us break even by contributing as little as $2 per month. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or click on the support us link at hubhistory.com. And now it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a book from city archaeologist Joe Bagley called The History of Boston in 50 Artifacts. This week, we're going to be talking about the indigenous culture in and around Boston right after the first contact with English settlers. Unfortunately, there's little documentary history to show us how Native peoples experienced this contact, and what documents exist were almost all created by Europeans. Native voices are largely represented by artifacts of their material culture. The History of Boston and 50 Artifacts uses material culture to tell the story of Boston from prehistory through the mid-20th century. Bagley uses beautifully shot images of each artifact alongside essays about each one to tell the reader about the relic, its history, and what it can tell us about life in Boston at the time it was created. Of the 50 items that are cataloged, seven are artifacts from the indigenous people who lived in Boston before it was Boston. They range from a 7,500-year-old spear point dug up on Boston Common to the largest existing piece of woven cloth made by Northeastern tribes that dates to the 1400s or 1500s to a copper arrowhead created in the brief window after local tribes began trading with Europeans, but before English settlers arrived in Massachusetts. Here's how the publisher describes the book. History is right under our feet. We just need to dig a little to find it. Though not the most popular construction project, Boston's Big Dig has contributed more to our understanding and appreciation of the city's archaeological history than any other recent event. Joseph M. Bagley, city archaeologist of Boston, uncovers a fascinating hodgepodge of history, from ancient fishing grounds to jazz-age red-light districts that will surprise and delight even longtime residents. Each artifact is shown in full color and accompanied by a description of the item's significance to its site location and the larger history of the city. From cannonballs to drinking cups and from ancient spears to chinaware, A History of Boston and 50 Artifacts offers a unique and accessible introduction to Boston's history and physical culture while revealing the ways objects can offer a tantalizing entree into our past. Packed with vivid descriptions and art, this lively history of Boston will appeal to all manner of readers, 
locals and visitors alike. The best part is that proceeds from the sales of the book go to the City Archaeology Department to help fund future digs. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a lunchtime talk at the Massachusetts Historical Society on March 6th at noon. Peter Olson Harbich, a PhD candidate at the College of William and Mary, will be presenting on his dissertation titled A Meaningful Subjection, Coercive Inequality and Indigenous Political Economy in the Colonial Northeast. Here's how the MHS website describes it. This talk presents archaeological and documentary evidence of indigenous authority structures and law enforcement in Northeast America in the period immediately prior to European settlement. It then evaluates European comprehension of indigenous mechanisms of rule enforcement and the degree to which awareness of them factored into designs for colonization. The talk is free and reservations are not required. Just bring a brown bag lunch to enjoy during the lecture. Now, because March 6th is still a long way off, and because we know not everyone can get to the MHS during the middle of a workday, we have a bonus event this week. On Wednesday, February 20th at 6 p.m., William M. Fowler Jr. will be giving a talk at the main branch of the Public Library in Copley Square. Fowler is a past director of the Massachusetts Historical Society, consulting editor at the New England Quarterly, honorary professor of history at Northeastern University, and a prolific author with several volumes of maritime history to his name. His talk is titled, Boston Looks Seaward, A History of the Port of Boston. Here's how the website describes it. Nestled between the granite face of Cape Ann and the beckoning finger of Cape Cod, for nearly 400 years, Boston has set her face to the sea. William M. Fowler Jr. explores the evolution of the city's relation with its oceanic neighbor. First came the fishermen and explorers, then arrived the settlers and immigrants. In the 19th century, in his East Boston yards, Donald McKay built clipper ships whose sailing records have yet to be broken. Today, Boston continues to look seaward as we embrace our maritime heritage. This talk is also free, but in this case, registration is required. We'll have a link to the registration page in this week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. I'm a sucker for any kind of post-apocalyptic movies or TV shows. The end of society has come, whether through nuclear war, disease, environmental catastrophe, alien invasion, or simple societal collapse. And now a lone survivor or a small plucky band is forced to find their way amongst the crumbling ruins of the old world. It's a theme that's familiar from The Last Man with Vincent Price and from the Mad Max movies. There was even an alien invasion series called Falling Skies set in the ruins of Boston, where the first season opened with the surviving humans losing the Battle of the Back Bay, and then slowly retreating across the suburbs before the alien hordes. In recent years, the idea of an apocalyptic plague has been increasingly popular, often, but not always, involving a zombie virus. Twelve Monkeys with Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis fell near the beginning of this trend in the 1990s, and it's become one of the most common horror tropes. Think of Will Smith stalking the abandoned streets of New York in I Am Legend, or the rambling, bloody world of AMC's The Walking Dead. Almost 400 years ago, Boston Harbor was witness to a real-life horror, when a handful of the living walked amongst the ruins of a civilization condemned by disease, surrounded by the bodies of the plague's unburied victims. Thomas Morton was one of the earliest English colonists on Boston Harbor, arriving in 1624 
as part of a company that set up a trading post called Mount Wollaston in today's Quincy. Writing about his years in Quincy, he recalled, a great mortality that happened among the natives of New England about the time that the English came there to plant. After discussing a French trading vessel that fought and lost a battle against the local Native Americans just a few years before he settled nearby, Morton talks about the mortality among local villages. The hand of God fell heavily upon them with such a mortal stroke that they died on heaps as they lay in their houses, and the living that were able to shift for themselves would run away and let them die, and let their carcasses lie above the ground without burial. For in a place where many inhabited, there had been but one left to live to tell what became of the rest. The living being, as it seems, not able to bury the dead, they were left for crows, kites, and vermin to prey upon. And the bones and skulls upon the several places of their habitations made such a spectacle after my coming into those parts, that, as I traveled in that forest near the Massachusetts, it seemed to me a newfound Golgotha. You can see why Morton might draw a parallel to the place of the skull. Golgotha, the biblical killing grounds where Jesus is said to have been crucified. As he walked through the now depopulated Massachusetts forests, Morton might well have felt like Will Smith's character in I Am Legend, imagining himself the last living man surrounded by the remains of a dead world. There were unburied human remains among the trees, and at former village sites he found bodies piled up in heaps. Elsewhere in the book, he notes that it is the custom of those Indian people to bury their dead ceremoniously and carefully, and to make some monuments over the place where the corpse is interred. So the very existence of those untended, unburied remains indicates the speed and severity of the apocalypse that had overtaken the Massachusetts people soon before his arrival. This is a far cry from what another English explorer was reporting about the settlements on Boston Harbor less than a decade before. By 1614, Captain John Smith was already famous for his role in founding the Jamestown Settlement on the coast of Virginia. You have the most unusual names here. Chickahominy, Queagahonic, Pocahontas. You have the most unusual name, too. John Smith. Hey! Dancing raccoons aside, that summer he returned to North America and sailed the coasts of Maine and Massachusetts in search of whales and gold. He had little luck in finding either, but he did trade for a small fortune in beaver skins. Among the many places he visited was Boston Harbor, with its many islands, about which he wrote, I have seen at least 40 several habitations upon the seacoast. Of all the four parts of the world I have yet seen, could I have but means to transplant a colony, I would rather live here than anywhere. Here are many isles planted with corn, groves of mulberries, savage gardens, and good harbors. The sea coasts, as you pass them, show you all along large cornfields and great troops of well-proportioned people. So, in 1614, Smith described our harbor islands as being densely populated by villages of well-proportioned people with large cornfields, gardens, and berry patches. While we have few written records of what life was like on Boston Harbor before permanent English colonies were established in the 1620s, archaeological evidence can give some clues as to what life was like for the original inhabitants of the Shawmut Peninsula. Some estimates say that there were about 60,000 residents of Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island at the time of European contact. 
The Massachusetts tribe itself, centered on Boston Harbor and the Blue Hills, probably numbered about 4,500. The rich waters of Boston Harbor were a key food source for indigenous residents, and this seafood diet left behind evidence that the Massachusetts and their ancestors occupied the Shawmut Peninsula and the Boston Harbor Islands for about 12,000 years. A shell midden is the fancy archaeology term for a pile of discarded shells left behind after people eat large amounts of shellfish in the same spot over a long period of time. The shells accumulate, and they don't rot quickly. Large shell middens have been excavated on Boston Common, on Spectacle Island, Thompson Island, and at World's End in Hingham. More were likely destroyed by construction without ever being noted. The multiple large middens at Spectacle Island in particular show evidence of a large population using the island over a long period of time. Another form of seafood left evidence of the early residents of Shawmut Peninsula for modern archaeologists to study. The Massachusetts State Archaeologist's Office describes how, in 1913, workers digging the tunnel for the new subway 30 feet under Boylston Street found numerous small tree branches that had been sharpened on one end and set in the ground with more branches woven between some of the stakes. Additional construction in the 1940s revealed more of the fish weirs. Although the bay had been filled in by natural processes and by purposeful landfilling in the 19th century, the arrangement of stakes was recognized as belonging to a series of fish weirs built by Native Americans around 4,000 years ago. Schooling fish like alewife, shad, and mackerel would be trapped in the weirs as the tide receded, making it easy to gather and preserve them. This labor-saving method allowed others to hunt, tend crops, and gather wild foods. Thus, the sea supported the great troops of well-proportioned people that were reported in the decades before Puritans and Pilgrims made their homes in Massachusetts. With all the hullabaloo about the Mayflower Pilgrims, it's easy to forget that they weren't the first Europeans to explore the shores of New England. Even leaving aside the thousand-year-old Viking settlement a few hundred miles to the northeast in Newfoundland, There were plenty of Europeans roaming our shores not long after the famous voyage of Christopher Columbus. In 1504, a French ship spent the season fishing along the Grand Banks. They were soon followed by the Portuguese, the Dutch, and Basque whalers. By 1519, a hundred European ships would spend the summer on the banks. In 1605 and 06, Frenchman Samuel de Champlain would visit Cape Cod and Plymouth Harbor. Within a few years, English settlers began making their way to the shores of Massachusetts Bay. Prince's Chronological History of New England records early efforts by Fernando Gorges, who was involved in early settlement schemes in both Massachusetts and Maine. Sir F. Gorges also sends vines with a ship to fish, trade, and discover for some years together, and hires men to stay the winter, wherein the plague raged among the Indians, which I suppose is the winter of 1616-17. Vine's men may have been responsible for the widespread death that followed, or it could be attributable to a small band of Frenchmen who survived a shipwreck on Cape Cod the same year. However it started, historians agree that the winter of 1616-17 was ground zero for the terrible epidemic. Historian Charles Francis Adams, in his three episodes of Massachusetts history, wrote, Throughout the years 1616 and 17, the hand of death lay heavily on those then dwelling in the eastern portions of what is now the state of Massachusetts. The savages died, as a writer of that time phrased it, like rotten sheep, 
Continuing, he said that the plague center would seem to have been Boston Bay. Writing in 2014, Mark Lasky described the extent of the epidemic. Reports from the period indicate that the epidemic covered an area that spanned from the Kennebec and Penobscot rivers of southern Maine to the Narragansett Bay of Rhode Island, and with the highest rate of fatalities concentrated around Boston Harbor and Plymouth Bay. Thomas Dermer sailed the Massachusetts coast in 1619 and reported, I passed along the coast where I found some ancient plantations, not long since populous, now utterly void. In other places, a remnant remains, but not free of sickness. The next year, John Smith revisited Massachusetts Bay, as he recounts in the general history of Virginia. God had laid this country open for us and slain the most part of the inhabitants by cruel wars and a mortal disease. For where I had seen a hundred or two hundred people in 1614, there is scarce ten to be found. From Pembroke's Bay to Harrington's Bay, there is not twenty. From thence to Cape Ann, some thirty. From Talbot's Bay to the River Charles, about forty. Dermer believed that he knew the cause of this widespread mortality, writing, Their disease is the plague. For we might perceive the sores of some that had escaped, who described the spots of such as usually die. Charles Francis Adams cautioned against taking that claim of plague too seriously. What particular form in modern nomenclature the fatal sickness took has never been ascertained. Those who wrote about it shortly after called it a plague, with which the inhabitants were sore afflicted. But in the 17th century, the name plague was a convenient one popularly used in connection with any fatal epidemic, the nature and symptoms of which physicians didn't understand. There is no reason to suppose that the Massachusetts sickness bore any resemblance to the Black Death which swept over Europe in the 14th century. Daniel Gookin, an early settler of Virginia who moved to Boston after his Puritan sympathies made him unwelcome there, believed that yellow fever was to blame for the decimation of the Massachusetts tribe. He wrote in 1674, what this disease was, that so generally and mortally swept away not only these, but other Indians, their neighbors, I cannot well learn. Doubtless, it was some pestilential disease. I have discoursed with some old Indians that were then youths who say that the bodies all over were exceedingly yellow, describing it by a yellow garment they showed me, both before they died and afterward. Modern scholars can't pin down a single cause for the epidemic, though theories abound. A 2010 paper in the Journal of Emerging Infectious Diseases summarized the most popular explanations and added one more theory to the pile. Explanations have included yellow fever, smallpox, and plague. Chickenpox and trichinosis are among more recent proposals. We suggest an additional candidate. Leptospirosis, complicated by Weill syndrome. Our neighbors to the south arrived a decade before the English settlers of Boston did. Prince's Chronological History of New England adapts a passage from Mort's 1622 relation to explain how the Plymouth Pilgrims learned that their plantation stood in the ruins of an indigenous village called Patuxet. The entry for March 16, 1621 states, this morning, a savage boldly comes alone along the houses straight to the rendezvous, surprises us with calling out, Welcome, Englishman, welcome, Englishman, having learned some broken English among the fishermen. The first Indian we met with, his name Samoset, says he's a sagamore, 
and has been in these parts eight months. We entertain him, and he informs us of the country, that the place we are in is called Patuxet, that about four years ago, all the inhabitants died of an extraordinary plague, and there is neither man, woman, nor child remaining, as indeed we find none to hinder our possession or lay claim to it. A week later, Samoset returned and introduced the pilgrims to another native man named Tesquantum. Squanto, as the English derisively referred to him, had been kidnapped by one of John Smith's subordinate officers in 1614, sold as a curiosity in Spain, made his way to London, and by 1619 he had joined English settlers in Newfoundland and finally found his way back to Patuxet. In the meantime, the village had been completely devastated, and most sources call him the last living resident. Even before permanent English settlements were established on Massachusetts Bay, there was enough seasonal traffic between New England and England for people in the old country to be aware of the great ongoing apocalypse on New World shores. The language English settlers used to describe this devastating epidemic is shockingly callous to the modern ear. Even the 1620 Charter of New England that King James I issued to establish the Plymouth Colony mentions it, calling the catastrophic disease a wonderful plague. We have been given certainly to know that within these late years, there hath by God's visitation reigned a wonderful plague, together with many horrendous slaughters and murders committed amongst the savages and brutish people there, heretofore inhabiting, in a manner to the utter destruction, devastation, and depopulation of that whole territory, so that there is not left for many leagues together any that do claim or challenge any kind of interest therein, nor any other superior lord or sovereign to make claim hereunto whereby we in our judgment are persuaded and satisfied that the appointed time has come, in which Almighty God and His great goodness and bounty towards us and our people hath thought fit and determined that those large and goodly territories, deserted as it were by their natural inhabitants, should be possessed and enjoyed by our subjects and people. Writing in the Magnalia Christi Americana, Cotton Mather also uses the language of miracles to describe this fatal epidemic. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days, in the times of old. How thou dravest out the heathen with thy hand, and plantest them. How thou didst afflict the people, and cast them out. The Indians in these parts had newly, even about a year or two before, been visited with such a prodigious pestilence, as carried away not a tenth, but nine parts of ten. Yes, tis said nineteen of twenty among them so that the woods were almost cleared of those pernicious creatures to make room for a better growth. Writing in 1669, Pilgrim Nathaniel Morton certainly believed that the great mortality among the coastal tribes of New England had been an act of God. The Lord also so disposed, as aforesaid, much to waste them by a great mortality. So, as the twentieth person was scarce left alive when these people arrived, there remaining sad spectacles of that mortality in the place where they seated, by many bones and skulls of the dead lying above the ground, whereby it appeared that the living of them were not able to bury their dead. Some of the ancient Indians that are surviving at the writing hereof do affirm that about some two or three years before the first English arrived here, they saw a blazing star, or comet, which was a forerunner of this sad mortality, for soon after it came upon them in extremity. Thus, God made way for his people by removing the heathen and planting them in the land. 
A few years after Plymouth was established, Englishmen began settling on Boston Harbor itself. Cotton Mather would say, The Indians were consumed in such vast multitudes that our first planters found the ground almost covered with their unburied carcasses. Those first planters weren't John Winthrop and his Puritans. Rather, the early settlers on Boston Harbor came as part of the West Augusset Colony in 1622 and Mount Wollaston in 1624. Rather than the religious experiments that had been founded at Plymouth and would soon be in Boston, these early settlements were purely commercial enterprises. And they both failed quickly. The trading post at Mount Wollaston soon collapsed, and Thomas Morton organized a utopian community called Marymount. The community lasted about five years before hostilities with Plymouth Colony forced it to dissolve. Thomas Morton was taken back to England in chains and was jailed upon arriving. This gave him time to write A New English Canaan, which we quoted from earlier in describing the woods around Massachusetts Bay as A Newfound Golgotha, and which Cotton Mather probably based his description of the ground almost covered with their unburied carcasses on. After two attempts to establish a permanent West Augusset settlement located at today's Weymouth, most of the settlers gave up and returned to England in the spring of 1624. A few stayed on in Weymouth, and one, William Blackston, set up a farm on the nearby Shawmut Peninsula. Blackston didn't write about the experience, but he too settled on land that had been occupied by the Massachusetts people before the 1616 plague had decimated the tribe. One has to imagine that his farm, which a few years later became the town of Boston, was also covered with unburied carcasses. In 1621, the powerful Massachusetts sachem Chickatawbit had entertained pilgrim Miles Standish and a delegation from Plymouth at his summer home on Boston Harbor. The following year, another less documented disease outbreak caused even more deaths among his people. A party of Plymouth pilgrims who visited Chickatawbit to trade for corn wrote only that they found among the Indians a great sickness not unlike the plague. Some estimates say that there were only about 750 members of the Massachusetts tribe left alive when John Winthrop's Arbella fleet arrived on Massachusetts Bay in 1630. In a PBS documentary, Jill Lepore tried to grapple with what the psychological effect of that mass mortality might be. A whole village might have two survivors, and those two survivors were not just like any two people. They were two people who had seen everyone they know die miserable, wretched, painful, excruciatingly painful deaths. So it's not only that the population was eviscerated, it's that the survivors were deeply affected by their experiences and vulnerable in ways that are hard for us to imagine this sort of post-apocalyptic vulnerability. The tribe's losses put them in a position of weakened power when these newcomers arrived, and Chickatawbit would be forced to accommodate English claims on his lands. Nevertheless, he attempted to find the best path forward for his people. Unfortunately, a third outbreak of European disease in 1633 killed Chickatawbit and reduced the tribe to a small minority within their own homeland. John Winthrop recorded the event in a journal entry in November of 1633. A great mortality among the Indians. Chickatawbit, the Sagamore of Neponset, died, and many of his people. The disease was the smallpox. Some of them were cured by such means as they had from us. Many of their children escaped and were kept by the English. Being kept by the English in the context of colonial New England almost certainly means being enslaved. Mark Lasky wrote, As each new generation succumbed to disease, traditional culture became more fractured, 
and the future outlook more fatalist. The Algonquin tribes held few end-time beliefs of their own. In an attempt to understand the catastrophic impact of the Great Dying and the epidemics that followed, survivors found resonance in the Christian narrative held by European settlers who brought the pestilence to their shores. Disillusioned by their traditional belief system, an increasing number of Algonquin people also began to look to the Christian God for spiritual guidance. The Great Dying forever upended Native culture in Massachusetts. Waves of disease disrupted the traditional diplomatic alliances and rivalries between indigenous nations in southern New England. The Massachusetts people, once the most powerful inhabitants of the Massachusetts Bay around the Shawmut Peninsula, found their numbers nearing extinction, while traditional foes gained power. Their increasing dependence on English military protection and the growing influence of the Christian church led many Massachusetts to settle and minister John Eliot's praying towns. By the outbreak of King Philip's War in 1675, the Narragansett tribe to the south and their powerful allies had been mostly untouched by European diseases, and they fought a war of annihilation against the New England colonies. The praying Indians, including the Massachusetts, were forced into internment camps on Deer Island, where their numbers were thinned still further by disease, cold, and starvation. To learn more about the epidemics among Boston's native population, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 119. We'll have links to the accounts by English settlers and explorers that we quoted from. We'll also link to some resources from the Massachusetts Historical Commission that show how archaeological finds can illustrate what life was like for the Massachusetts people before the Great Dying. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and A History of Boston and 50 Artifacts, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.